My topic for today on this Good Friday is turning your world upside down. You see, Jesus did not come into this world so that you and I could keep living our lives our same old way. So I'll say it this way. It's okay for you to not be okay. It's okay. But it's not okay for you to stay that way. And so the purpose of Jesus' coming with his death and his resurrection is so that our lives could be changed. It's not about us staying the same. So just think, every single time that someone came face to face and encountered Jesus, they had their world just turned upside down. The blind were given sight. The paralyzed were then able to to walk, doubting skeptics would then bow down and worship at the feet of Jesus. Those that had been grieving would dance for joy. Those who were in bondage because of demonic activity or different sins were set free, broken, were restored. What you're seeing with Jesus is when people knew him and saw him and were following him, their lives changed. They did not stay the same. But there were others, though, that encountered Jesus, and they walked away angry and unchanged. Those were the people who were happy with the status quo. They did not want any transformation. They rejected the revelation of God and the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't want to live for the glory of God. They wanted to keep living for themselves and their agenda and their lives to stay the same. They wanted just business as usual. See, but God wants to so radically change your life. Make everything, again, just so different. And turn your life upside down to the point where For you to try to rely on your old patterns or relying on your old habits to carry you through just won't work anymore. And he wants you to be in a position where your world is so turned upside down that you recognize your desperate need for Jesus. So that we can be in this position, this posture of dependence. And see, Jesus wants to be your hope your security, your joy, your purpose, your, your everything. And for that to happen, to have that kind of change in your heart, in your soul, Jesus is going to have to turn your world upside down. And on this Good Friday, I believe that our God, through the power of his spirit, is calling your name. And he is calling on you to surrender to him. Surrender all of it to him for his glory. So we're going to focus our hearts and our minds this morning on our King Jesus as we're going to see the events that led to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, death, and his, his burial. We're going to get our minds around that from the book of Mark. So we have Bibles. Please turn to Mark 14. We're going to see from Mark 14 and 15 how 
Jesus' coming and the events surrounding his death, he was turning the world upside down for his glory to be displayed. And he wants to turn yours upside down so that it can also reflect his glory. Mark 14, we'll pick up the story with verse 43. Jesus had just been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that God's will be done, not his and verse 43 says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him once again and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. So you see Jesus here is being betrayed by a friend. He is being arrested by the authorities. He is being abandoned by all his other friends, because if you go to the end of this section in verse 50, it says, and they all left him and fled. So everyone that was close to him was afraid, and they abandoned Jesus. They fled and were hiding under rocks. And what you have here then is Jesus who goes before the high priest and, and the council, the governing, ruling authority, and he's being interrogated, and they're trying to find any false accusation, anything that would stick. So they're just throwing accusations against the wall, hoping something's going to just stick. So that way they can justify their desires to kill Jesus because they're envious of him and they don't want to change or lose their power. And so they're, they're trying, but the problem is all of these false testimonies are, are not lining up. They're, they're failing. And so the high priest in verse 61, he goes through the jugular and he wants to make sure that he can condemn Jesus. And he asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He was asking, Jesus, do you claim to be divine? Do you claim to be the son of God? Are you the promised Messiah from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament? So Jesus is asked a direct question. Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? And in verse 62, Jesus answers him directly, I am. Okay, that right there you should pause. He says, I am. You might remember when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God appears in a burning bush to Moses and says, you need to deliver my people. And he says, who, who do I say that you are? He says, I am. So Jesus says, I am. Yes, I, I am he who was in that burning bush. I am one with God. It says, and you will see the Son of Man. The Son of Man, we looked at that a few weeks ago out of, of Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the Messiah who will come in the clouds of heaven, who is God himself, fully God, fully human. He says, yes, I am God. Yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of Man. And he says, at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven, right hand of power, he's talking about Psalm 110. How he's describing Jesus, what he's doing here. Jesus, man, he's just dropping the hammer on them. 
He's saying, this is me. I am God. I am the Messiah. All of the Old Testament is pointing and fulfilled in me. It's all about me. This statement right here that Jesus gives, this one sentence, is they turn the world upside down, dropping a bomb on them kind of statement. So let me give you the first truth here from this text about how exactly does Jesus turn our world upside down? Number one, Jesus was judged, but he is the judge. You see a paradox here. It's being flipped on its head. Jesus was judged, but he is the judge. And so this council here is condemning him. And when they hear, I am the son of man, they went crazy. Like, they just went ballistic. You see it in verse 63 and 64. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So what you're seeing here is they know exactly what Jesus is saying, and it triggers this, this very angry, violent, emotional response from them. Jesus is saying, I am the judge at the right hand of power, and yet the king of glory, the judge, is now being judged. So the judge over the world is now being judged and condemned by the world. It's the opposite of what should be happening here. This is, this is a paradox. The judge is being judged. And so what happens? Well, the political authority here, this council and the high priest, because remember in, in the history here, in the first century, Israel, in Jerusalem here, the capital, was a province. So Judea was part of the Roman Empire. And so they were occupied by the Romans, and so they didn't have the authority to execute what they considered a criminal, Jesus here. And so they had to send him to the Roman governor who is over the province of Judea. So they go to Pilate, who is the Roman authority, and they present their case. But even this pagan politician, Pilate, could clearly see that they were just envious of Jesus, and Jesus had done no wrong. And so he tries p political tactics that we even see today. And so modern day politics, they try to manipulate or bargain or filibuster or stalling. And so it's the same thing that you see Pilate doing. He's using all of his political tools at his disposal, but it's not working. The crowd still is saying, crucify him. It's not working. So if you go to chapter 15, Verse 12, we'll pick up the story there with Pilate. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, What? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so here you see, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And yet, because he is a politician, and sadly, he had no conviction, no spine, verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, who was another criminal, who was actually a, a, a real criminal, 
he released him. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And so even though he knew better, he still, in order to protect his political career and prevent a riot and, and bad, bad publicity, and he, he, he didn't want to have poor approval ratings, and so he went ahead and went with the crowd, and he said, okay, fine, go ahead and kill this innocent man. Going against his convictions that he actually had none. But let's be very clear here. Jesus was not surprised. He did not catch Jesus off guard. This is, we're looking at Mark 15. If you go backwards and go to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, you'll see there, Jesus tells his disciples, I will be killed. This is going to happen. But on the third day, I'll be resurrected. And in case they missed it, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he tells them a second time, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die. But then on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. But because sometimes two times isn't enough, we know this as parents, right? So we say it a third time. And so Jesus, a third time in Mark chapter 10, tells them yet again. So let's read that one. This is, this is before the events even happened. Mark 10, verse 32 and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So they're traveling to the capital. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So they're nervous. They don't want to go to Jerusalem because they know that the leaders are hate Jesus. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen. He begins to prophesy. He tells them what's going to happen. Verse 33, he said, saying, see we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He could not have been any more clear in what he was telling these future events. And the reason is that his death was at the center of his purpose in coming to earth. Because remember, he, he tells it, the high priest, the Son of Man has come, which proves that he existed before. He's eternal, but he came into this world. And then if you read in the same chapter, 10, verse 45, he gives the reason for his death. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus said, I'm going to die. This is going to happen. Don't be surprised when I'm handed over and I'm falsely accused and I'm killed. I'm doing it. Willingly, I'm going to lay my life down as a ransom. Now, the word ransom means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. That's what it means. That's what the word entails. And so in the ancient world, the ransomer would have to pay the sacrificial payments, the ransom price. But, but the ransom had to match the value of the debt that that prisoner owed or the value of that slave. So it was, it was a payment in order to release that person from 
slavery to secure his or her freedom. And that's what Jesus did. He paid our debt. The sin that we committed against God the Father, he paid it in full. Now we have been ransomed. We have been set free. We have been redeemed, liberated from slavery because the price was paid. So Jesus had to suffer and die. It was the only way because of our sin. But on this Good Friday and this Easter weekend, you have to know and believe that God loves you. He loves you, which is why Jesus came. Because you and I would be condemned to an eternity experiencing only the holiness and the wrath of God, his judgment, and not experiencing his love and his mercy. And so Jesus came and he experienced the full wrath of God. And it's the only way <clears throat> that we could be forgiven. And if we think about this, I think we understand this more than maybe we think we do. If we just give it a little bit of thought. All life-changing love is sacrificial. Hear me. All life-changing love is a substitute sacrifice. So real, so genuine love is sacrificial. It is if someone is unwilling to sacrifice, then that shows that they don't really love. Just think about it for a second. Do you have someone in your life that has it all together? I'm talking about they're, they're doing well. They don't have any major problems or catastrophes in their life. When you hang out with them, it's just, it's just a pleasure. You just really enjoy their company. Those kinds of friendships are such a gift, aren't they? Because... Because we also have had maybe other kinds of friendships. Have you ever had a friendship that actually cost you something? Because if you had a friendship that was really easy and they had their life all together, well, that costs you nothing. That's easy and that's just enjoyable. But if you have a friend that is in legal trouble or that has an addiction or if you have a friend that is emotionally just messed up or wounded, if you have someone that's going through a divorce, if you have a friend that is just really struggling and their life is not all together, if you're going to be that person's friend, it will cost you. You're going to get your hands dirty. You're going to have moments where you're with that person and you're like, I wish my phone would ring so I could have an excuse to leave because you're just emotionally drained or empty and, and you just feel like, I just can't take this anymore. This person is so hurting and it's just emotionally draining me. Yes, it is. And the reason is that that person is emotionally empty and there's, in a very real sense, there has to be a transfer. Hear me, for that person who's emotionally empty, for them to be filled and to experience healing and to be whole again, they're going to need you to love them. They're going to need you to give up of your fullness and pour it into them. You're going to have to be emptied and emotionally drained so that they can experience healing and transformation and joy again. 
If you walk out on that person, they're not going to heal. They need to be loved. They need mercy and compassion so that they can then experience the healing that they need. And so you're going to have to pay the price to love them. It's going to cost you something. And if you're unwilling to pay that price, it shows that you really don't love that person. And it's no different as parents. And if you're a parent, even when they're little, you already know this. You realize, oh, this is going to cost me. Having a child or multiple is going to cost you. And not just financially, it will cost you that. But not just financially, emotionally. And there are sadly a lot of parents that just don't want to be bothered. And they don't sacrifice for their children. And so what happens is the children grow up. And so, so yeah, they're physically grown up, but emotionally, they're a mess. Because the parents did not put in the work and did not sacrifice and did not genuinely love that child enough. Now, granted, yes, there's many factors. This is a general truth. But it is still a truth that life-changing love is sacrificial. It is. Which is why Jesus sacrificed for you and for me. Because he loves you. And he wanted you to have fullness of life. He wanted you to be healthy and whole and healed and to have his righteousness. So we experience change ultimately because of his sacrificial love. This is in the ultimate cosmic sense. So we demonstrate love through sacrifice, and that is what Jesus did. Jesus paid it all. So we don't have to suffer judgment. So he who is the judge was judged so that we don't have to be. We don't fear this judge. We know him as our father. We know Jesus as our king. And he loves us. So Jesus wants to take your world and completely turn it upside down. And he did it by living the life that you could not live and by dying the death that you deserved. He died in our place. And so now this judge who paid the price has now set us free. We can run to him and know him. But secondly, how did he turn the world upside down? Well, Jesus was in darkness and he brings us into the light. So he who was the judge was judged, but also he who was in darkness brings us into the light. And so he suffered on the cross. And if you read in Mark 15, go to verse 33, when he is dying on the cross, listen to what happens. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, what is the sixth hour? Well, that is six hours from 6 a.m. when the day would begin. And so the sixth hour would be lunchtime. It's 12 noon. And so the sixth hour, it's middle of the day. The sun should be up. And then the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. So this is noon to 3 p.m., middle of the day. The sun should be shining. And it says that there was darkness that had come over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this was supernatural darkness. I want you to think back to the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. There were ten plagues that God sent to show his power and to then liberate his people from slavery. If you remember, the ninth plague was darkness. So darkness came over the land. This is a sign of God's judgment, of his displeasure. And then the tenth plague is where you have the death of the firstborn son. And, of course, God provided the Passover lamb to die in the place of the Israelites, his people, so they could then be free from slavery. The ransom was paid. And so what you have with darkness leading to the Passover lamb is being played out in the ultimate sense with Jesus on the cross. There is darkness. And so just like the people of God had the presence of God with a cloud that was with them, that was going with them, so they're experiencing his love, his grace, and his mercy was right there hovering over them in this cloud. They had his presence. But what you have here with this darkness, this dark cloud that has come over them is still God's presence, but it is God's judgment. It is not his love or his mercy. God is present, but in judgment. And that's what you see here. He is judging the sin of the world, and Jesus is enduring our sin, our guilt on the cross. And so there is darkness. So Jesus experienced the darkness of the judgment of God. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22 that we read earlier in the worship gathering. He was experiencing the judgment of God, complete aloneness and darkness. Verse 37, you see Jesus, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine on a reed. He gave it to him to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Of course, they were all clueless. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So hear this. He breathes his last. Jesus dies on the cross, and the curtain of the temple, it says, was torn in two from top to bottom. That's important. Don't miss that. From top to bottom. And when the centurion, he's a Roman soldier, uh, a Roman leader of over 100 men, when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And so the temple veil is torn from top to bottom, making it clear who was tearing it. God was tearing it himself. So that the people of God could then come into the presence of God. No more barrier into the presence of God. Now people could enter in. And who was the first person that entered in? A pagan, a Roman centurion. He declares, he recognizes the glory of Jesus as this man is the son of God. This centurion had his world just turned upside down in an instant. And he experienced here now the darkness. So Jesus experiences the darkness of God's judgment so that we can then experience light. He didn't stay dead. He resurrected. 
out of that darkness, he conquered sin and death and now offers us life and light. And so John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. If you follow Jesus, you're not in darkness anymore. He experienced darkness so that we could experience light. Have our worlds completely turned upside down. Jesus wants to come in and pierce the darkness of your world with his light. He wants to come into your world and just completely change it for his glory. Are you ready? Do you want this? I mean, are you hungry for this? Do you want the light of Jesus to come in and light up your world so you can walk in the light of life? Do you want more of Jesus and less of you? Do you want to see what God can do through you? Come into the light. Come into the light. Have you gotten so used to being in the dark? Maybe you've forgotten the warmth of the light of Jesus. But what are you waiting for? Come back into the light. He loves you and he'll receive you. Repent of that sin that is keeping you away from him and run to him. He experienced darkness. You can now walk in the light of life. He wants to just radically turn your world upside down. But lastly, he turns our world upside down because Jesus was killed, but he brings us to life. He had darkness, and he gives us light. He died, and he gives us life. Ephesians 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Hear this, we were dead in our sins. He says, he made us alive. So we were dead and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. You've been raised up. You've been given resurrected life. And this is why we sing to Jesus. This is why we gather together on Fridays and lift our hands and sing to him. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we love him. This is why we resolve to obey him. This is why we serve Jesus. This is why we trust him, reach for him, trust him. Why we adore him. Why we yearn to know him and to make him known. Is he your everything? He's given you life. He laid his down so that you can have resurrected life. We read from Psalm 22 earlier. I mentioned Jesus was quoting it saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you go to the very end, the last phrase of Psalm 22, it says, he has done it. Just like Jesus' last words were, it is finished. He accomplished it. He has done it. Jesus has done it. He's given us new life. Jesus has done it. He has won the victory. And so his victory is our victory. What the problem is, some of you don't believe it. Some of you don't actually believe this. 
you don't actually believe that you've been given the opportunity to walk in the light. You don't actually believe that you've been given resurrected life. You don't. You don't believe it. You live as though you're in darkness, and you live as though you don't have resurrected life. You know what you need? You need Jesus to come and turn your world upside down. That's what you need. Like you have to come face to face with Jesus and realize that he has a bigger vision for your life than what you have for your own. And he can do so much through you if you will let him. If you believe this, that he offers us new life. And we can walk in this newness. So he wants to turn around your addictions and turn around your brokenness upside down. And he just wants to just completely turn your world upside down. Are you experiencing the fullness of life with Christ? Have you ever truly experienced this resurrected life that Jesus offers? Maybe on this Good Friday, it's your first time in church in a long time. Maybe you're here because someone invited you and you thought, well, I might as well go to church. It is Easter weekend after all. If that's the case, God has brought you here for a purpose. He wants you to know him, to experience this new life, the light of life that Jesus talks about, that he died to offer to you. What he's asking is that you surrender. He's asking that you would repent of your sins, turn away, and with all your heart, trust in Jesus and his work on the cross alone to save you. And if you have never done that, you have to know that he is risen and that he wants to change you and fill you, use you in ways you can't even imagine and reconcile you to God so you have peace with God. Forgiveness. Will you repent of your sins and truly trust Jesus? If you are a believer here on this Good Friday morning, maybe you're saying, Pastor, man, I realize that I have not been very intentional in how I'm following Jesus. I am not walking in the light. There's areas of darkness that needs more of his healing. I need more hope. And I, I want to recommit to truly follow Jesus In a few moments, we're going to ask our elders to come to the front, and we're going to have a response time where we're going to ask you to just come. And you can pray with me or with a fellow elder. I'm also going to ask Ruth, who leads our prayer team, to come to the front. If you're a lady, want to pray with a lady, you can pray with Ruth. We'd love that as well. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. And if you don't know Jesus, then we will introduce you to him right now. You can experience this new life. But if you do know him, and you just want someone to encourage you and pray with you, invite you to come. Let us be a people that are so passionate for Jesus that he becomes our, our everything. Now I'm just praying that he will be at work in just turning our world upside down for his glory. So I'm going to call worship team to the front now. And they're going to be playing. And so as they do, let us pray. Father, this morning, we are humbled 
that you would love us, that you would hear us, that you would send your son to die for us, like the centurion who was transformed and had his world turned upside down. I pray that you will do that here this morning, that people will respond to you with the resolve to follow you. I pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that you would conform us to the image of your son for your glory, we pray in the name of our first love, Jesus. Amen. So come, if God is leading you.